no one like you. <laughs> How you are our victor. We are more than conquerors through you who have loved us. Because you died and rose again. We remember that you rose again and that you are alive in us. Oh, you are alive in us.
the cross, the work was finished. You were buried in the ground, but the grave could not contain you, for you were the You didn't want heaven without 
Hallelujah. Uh, I wasn't planning on coming up here, but as they were singing that song, some scriptures I was reading yesterday in John, I believe it's John 17, it says, and this is eternal life. You know, a lot of times people just think, well, what is eternal life? What did Jesus really come to bring us? And some people think, well, my sins are forgiven. In other words, God just sort of like goes, well, uh, you're okay. I, I forgive you of that. And thank God we go to heaven when we die. Oh, wonderful. No, this is what Jesus said. This is life eternal. That you may know God. The only I read it in the Amplified now, so I can't repeat it right in the Amplified. I can only repeat it in the King James, but I read the Amplified. But this is life eternal. That you would know God. You would know God. And Jesus Christ, who he sent. You know, thank God when God came and through the Lord Jesus Christ, he brought us eternal life. Our sins, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, they're not just forgiven. They're wiped away. Like we never did them. 
He brought us eternal life that we would know God and know Jesus who he sent. That means everything, who God is and what he's done for us, who he's made us, we can now know God and we can now know personally Jesus Christ who he sent. So Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus. We thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he gave his life for us. And we thank you and bless your name. Hallelujah. For, Lord, you're good. You provided eternal life for us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you're seated, why don't you greet several people, introduce yourself to them. And after you've done that, you may be seated. Welcome to Foothill Family Church and Happy Easter. He is risen indeed. If this is your first time visiting with us, please let us know by filling out a visitor card. If our greeters didn't give you one as you entered, please raise your hand now and an usher will be happy to bring you one. From everyone here at Foothill Family Church, we're glad you're here. So that our staff can enjoy the rest of Easter with their families, there will be no prayer school or healing school tonight. The Men's Monday Night Bible Study will meet at 7 p.m. tomorrow night here at FFC in the Fellowship Hall. Join us for our midweek service every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. here in the Sanctuary. For other events happening at Foothill Family Church, be sure to check today's bulletin. Good morning, family. How are you? I love watching you guys worship. Usually I'm so focused on leading that I get to stand over here today and just worship. You guys know how to worship. It's a good Sunday to worship. You guys, uh, I wanted to come up and just share a few minutes. My name is Chip. I'm the youth and young adults pastor here at Foothill Family Church. And uh, God is moving in our young people. Amen. You guys, we um, this year has been really fun for me. It's been my first full year as youth pastor, and it is exciting, scary, and fun, and dangerous all at the same time. Um, but one of the ways that God has, has moved for us is, is let us go into some of the schools. Now, you guys know today that schools are a very tough place to talk about Jesus in. And God made a way for us through, through different connections and things to be able to go into school. So, uh, so twice a week, I'm at different high schools around here. And then every once in a while, I get to go speak at other schools. And I know sometimes us being the older generation can kind of talk down or talk negatively about this young generation. But there is a bunch of these young people whose hearts are on fire for Jesus. I get to go hang out with these, with these kids um, uh, at their schools and to watch them. And, and, the, and they have a whole bunch of distractions, but they choose to give up lunch times to come hear about Jesus. They have different speakers come in. Some of the kids even lead worship. And it's such an amazing time of just getting to share Jesus on the campus. So you guys continue to pray for us. Continue to pray for the young people. But God is moving amongst your young people. 
Continue to keep them in your prayers. And Friday night we had a, you guys weren't invited, but we had a good Friday service for our youth and young adults where uh, we got to have a night of worship and celebration and communion. Um, and we had a great time. And at the end of the night, one of the students came and she said, hey, can I tell you something? And I said, sure you can. And I was like, uh-oh, what, what, what happened now? I know I got, I got a little on him during the worship service, you know, because it was just another Friday night, and then we had to kind of kickstart it, and then God just moved the rest of the service. And uh, so she came up and, and said, can I talk to you? And I said, okay, not knowing what I was in store for. And, and she said, the, the friend I brought tonight received Jesus. You guys, God is moving in these young people. Keep praying for us. Don't give up on the younger generation. They're the ones that have legs that are going to run the name of Jesus around this earth. Some of y'all look tired some days, so we need the young people. Continue to pray for them. Continue to build them up. You guys, and th just thank you for being our church family, for loving on us, for loving on these young people. Continue to encourage us, them. Continue to encourage us in the ministry. We love you guys. Happy Easter. Thank you. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, we've been believing God to get into the high schools ever since we started the church and and it's thrilling to see it come to pass. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, happy Easter. We want to give you an opportunity to give this morning. It's good to be able to give. Amen? Amen. The ushers are in the aisles. They have offering envelopes in their hands. If you'd like a receipt for your giving, just lift your hands and these gentlemen will serve you. Hallelujah. What a wonderful God we serve. You know, he promised to take care of every part of our lives everything about us. He promised to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But folks, I want to encourage you, don't just believe for your needs to be met. Believe for extra to give. The Bible says God gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. You know, there comes a point, this whole world revolves around money and, and the pursuit of it and so forth. But there comes a point where when you have what you need, you have what you need. Then what? The other side of having what you need is where the fun really is. The other side of having your needs met so that then you can be a blessing to other people. That's the real joy in life. So I want to encourage you. Get your needs met and then start focusing on other people. That's what we're supposed to do with our finances. Amen. Not just our finances, but including that. So I want to encourage you in these last days. I believe Jesus is coming soon. So I want to encourage you in these last days to believe for spectacular increase. So that we can finish the work God's given us to do. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to give. We thank you that your word is true. And because it is, we thank you for meeting all of our needs according to your riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But Father, we don't want just our needs met. We want to experience increase so that we can do more for the kingdom of God. We want to help finance the, the preaching of the gospel all around the world. And that takes money. So thank you, Father, for spectacular increase in these last days. In Jesus' precious name, amen.
voices this morning. pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of Jesus that was offered for us. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. We thank you that you've accomplished it through the finished work of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the presence of the Holy Ghost that's here within us and among us today. I thank you for giving me utterance to say the things to the people that you want them to hear But even more so, I thank you for speaking individually to each one of our hearts so that we hear from you, not just the words of man, but that we hear from you. We thank you for making it so, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I've got about four different directions I want to go this morning. So that means a four-hour sermon. No, not really. The Genesis account of creation tells us that God, with his words, created a perfect earth, a perfect environment. 
It tells us also that after God created everything that there was here on the earth, he made man. And he said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the, all the earth, all the work of God's hands. So God put Adam and Eve in the middle of the Garden of Eden with a full supply, anything and everything that ever need. And there was only one restriction, only one commandment that God had placed upon man. And that was that he was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God never wanted you to know what evil was. He didn't want you to make the comparison between good and evil. That never was his plan. And he told Adam that there was a penalty for it if he disobeyed. And it was a severe one. He said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, most people think that death is always about physical death. And Adam didn't die physically the day that he disobeyed God. He lived for 930 years after when he disobeyed God, when he broke the commandment. God was talking about spiritual death. So when Adam disobeyed God and partook of the fruit of the tree that he was forbidden to have, he plunged the whole world into darkness. The Bible says that he saw, he and, and Adam and Eve both, saw that their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked and ashamed. First thing they became aware of was themselves. Now, we don't know what the purpose of, the entirety of the purpose of when the Bible says they saw they were naked and ashamed. It's not like their clothes fell off. They'd been naked all the time. But they were clothed with something else. I believe that was the life of God, the glory of God itself. The Bible says that when God made man, he fashioned his body with his hands and then he breathed into him the breath of life. He took his own self, his own spirit, and breathed into man to give him life. Well, that changed when they disobeyed God and fell. As I said, darkness overtook the whole of the earth. And so now God's got to come up with a plan to bring man back to himself. The Bible says that Jesus being sent to the earth to pay the price for mankind was part of God's original intent even before the universe was made. So God saw everything that was going on. He saw everything that would happen. It didn't take him by surprise because he already had a plan. Well, that plan was Jesus coming to the earth. Now, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to pay the price. God couldn't just look away and say, well, we'll do this another way. Or we'll just kill an animal and make man to have righteousness because of that. God had to satisfy his eternal justice. And the wages of sin is death. So somebody had to pay the price for death. Jesus came to the earth, spent 33 years here, three years of it in public ministry, anointed of the Holy Ghost, doing signs and wonders and miracles to show us the nature of God, to show us who the Father is. He said time and time again, the things that I do, I do because I see my Father do them. He never took credit. He never took a position of declaring that this was of him 
Everything was what his father told him to do. From that, we are to identify and understand who God is and the good things that he always does. Jesus never judged anybody. He pointed out the truth for the Pharisees on many occasions. He pointed out how they were hypocrites, how they really weren't after helping the people, but establishing some position for themselves with God, which is what religion always does. But Jesus was different. Jesus helped people. He helped everybody that he could. He helped everybody that would reach out in faith to take hold of what God had sent him to do. Only good. Because that's who God is. But the time came for Jesus to go from being the example of God to being our substitute before God. So he went to the cross. The plan of redemption is so simple from our point of view looking back. But it was a mystery. The Bible calls it the mystery that was hidden from the ages. Jesus had to be born of a virgin to bypass the sin and death that Adam had plunged the earth into. So he had a miracle birth, had a miracle life. And then he became the substitute for man. He had to lay down his life, his eternal life, because the wages of sin is death. He suffered terribly. The Bible says he laid the sin of, God laid the sin of all of us, the iniquity of us all on him. The Bible says he was beaten to pay the price for sickness and disease. We would consider it torture in our present vocabulary. He was tortured to pay the price that he didn't know to satisfy the debt that was not his. Jesus drew back from some of these things. It tells us the night that he was betrayed. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times. I get the impression from what the Bible tells us about this instance that Jesus didn't pray about a lot of things over and over. But this is a prayer he prayed three times. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, with God, all things are possible. He could have turned around right there. But then he concluded his prayer saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He suffered a horrifying death. Not just the crucifixion. Other people were crucified. There were two thieves crucified with Jesus on either side of him. So it wasn't just the crucifixion, which is a horrible way to die. They tell us that it brings suffocation. Because when you hang from the cross, it collapses or, or presses down, puts pressure on your lungs so that you have to lift up, push up from your feet to get each breath. Well, when your feet are nailed to the cross, that's agony every time you take a breath. 
Jesus died on the cross. But it's not physical death that was the penalty for sin. It was spiritual death. This is one place where a lot of the church doesn't understand really what happened, what Jesus did for them. I don't think. You judge it for yourself. But if physical death was the price for sin, then we'd be able to live our lives out here on the earth, die physically, have the debt paid through our physical death, and then go to heaven. But that's not the way it works. Spiritual death is identified in the scripture as separation from God. When Adam and Eve died spiritually in the Garden of Eden, the light went out. They lost the essence of who they were. And only Jesus as our substitute could bring that back to mankind. The Bible says that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. But there was one thing that held him steady and made him willing to go through with it. And that was the joy of the resurrection so that you and I could be saved, so that you and I could be born again, so that you and I could avoid the separation from God, which is spiritual death, and enjoy eternal life here on the earth and after we die physically. I think a lot of people have the idea that you get eternal life after death. But eternal life is for now. Eternal life is for now. I uh, have a testimony of salvation that I used to be ashamed of. My experience with getting saved was a little different than what you might hear from most people. I got saved when I was just a couple of days before my seventh birthday. A week prior, or a week or so, prior to the time when I was born again, God started speaking to my heart about Jesus. Now, I grew up in the church. So I'd heard the stories about Jesus. I knew about Jesus going to the cross. I knew that Jesus was raised from the dead for us. But there came a point, it was at the end of my six years of life on the earth. You know, you can have a lot of experience in six years, right? <laughs> but God started dealing with me about accepting Jesus. Now, I talked to Jesus all the time. I talked to God all the time. I didn't understand much of it, but I knew they were two different individuals. But when the Lord started talking to me about accepting Jesus, the only thing that I knew about that was that that's what people go down to the front of the church to do. And I was embarrassed to go to the front of the church. So I didn't. I didn't do what the Lord was telling me to do. I didn't know you could get saved anywhere. You didn't have to be at the front of the church. It's the way the church that I was part of did it, and so that's the way I thought it had to be done. So I rejected Jesus. I rejected the notion of being saved 
because I refused to go down where people could see me. Now, at that young age, something happened. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but the light went out on the inside of me. Paul said it this way, talking about his own experience. He said, I was alive without the law once. But when the law came, sin revived and I died. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because he was still alive physically. He had to be talking about spiritual death. So what the Holy Ghost is trying to tell us, it seems, is that children are born alive unto God, even though they're born unto sin. They're still alive unto God until they come to the place, the age, where they know the difference between right and wrong. For me, that was the end of six years. And so when I rejected Jesus, the light went out on the inside of me. And that scared me. I knew something had happened. I wouldn't have known how to describe it in any way. But it scared me. And so I spent about a week, didn't say anything to anybody, didn't tell anybody what was going on. But I remember the fear of those several days. Finally, I got to talking to my mom about it. I was so distraught over what was going on. She knew something was wrong, but she didn't know what it was. So she kept after me until I told her. And she explained to me that she didn't have to go to the front of the church to get saved. She said, we can do it right here. Thank God she knew how. So we knelt down beside my bed. And I asked Jesus into my heart. And the light came on again. So I've got about a week of experience with spiritual death. Like I said, I used to be ashamed of that testimony because I'd hear people talk about being saved out of terrible things. On drugs, addicted to alcohol, doing terrible things and whatever. You know how those testimonies go? They spend 25 minutes talking about all the bad stuff they did and then say, And then I got saved. (laughs) But growing in the knowledge of the word has brought me to a greater understanding, one that I didn't have for a long time. And that is this. My salvation experience was proof that salvation is not about your individual sins. At six, almost seven, it wasn't like I had a lot of history of sin. And salvation is not about forgiveness for your individual sins alone. That's certainly included. But the reason that that people that are lost, the reason the unsaved sin is because they're captured and held in bondage by spiritual death. It's Adam's sin that Jesus paid for. And if it was just our individual sins that was paid for by the blood of Jesus, then every time you sin, you'd have to get born again again. But he paid the price for the original sin. The debt of spiritual death that was due unto mankind. 
It's never about what you've done. It's about what Adam did. It never will be about what you do. It's about what Adam did. Adam plunged the world into darkness because the world is in darkness and we are in darkness until the point we, at the point we realize the difference between right and wrong and what accepting Jesus is about. We're unable to do right because we're bound by sin and death, spiritual death. So Jesus was God's plan to pay the debt for us. He died on the cross. But remember, it's not just physical death that was owed. It was spiritual death. Now, how does Jesus, who is the Son of God, pay the price with his blood? How does he pay the price for spiritual death? Because he never knew spiritual death himself. Jesus had eternal life. He walked in the life of God. How do you pay the price for spiritual death when you are the life of God? There's only one way that it can happen. And that is for Jesus to have died spiritually. Now I know it's controversial in a lot of circles. It's not for me. Because it seems very simple. Jesus had to die the death that you would have died in order to pay your debt. Well, would you have died the death of the righteous or the unrighteous? We had no power to be righteous. So each of us would have, had to die, would have died the death of the unrighteous. That's spiritual death. So Jesus, when he laid down his life, and when he hung on the cross, he gives us some clues about what's going on at the point that he cries out, and says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That seems to be the culmination of Jesus being made spiritual death. Of Jesus entering into, taking upon himself the death that mankind owed to God. Which was spiritual death. After Jesus dies on the cross, there are three days until the resurrection. The Bible indicates to us that during those three days, he was suffering unimaginable horrors to pay the price for you and me. We don't know exactly what all those are, but when the Bible says God laid upon Jesus the sin of mankind, this is not just an exercise of time. This is suffering that we can't even conceive of. But after three days, the price was paid. And there came a moment in time, a specific moment in time, where God said, that's it. It's done. He couldn't cut any corners and be just. So he had to let the thing play out in every respect. He couldn't just look at Jesus and have compassion on his willingness to pay the price and cut the time short. Jesus paid every bit of the price for you and me. But then there was a glorious moment 
when our sins had been paid for, when Adam's original debt or mankind's debt because of Adam's original sin was paid for, God said it's enough. And the Bible then says that the life of God came back in Jesus when we were justified, when the price was made, was paid in full for us. And the life of God came back into Jesus. He became the firstborn from the dead, spiritually dead. The firstborn among many brethren, the Bible says. And Jesus heads back to the earth. I want to read that account to you from John chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the sepulcher. And seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and come to cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, John, and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and he went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but I go to my brethren and say, But go unto my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. When Jesus was raised from the dead, 
he had to stop by the earth to pick up his body. That's when Mary sees him. That's why he commands her, don't touch me. He says, I've not been into heaven yet. I have not gone unto my father as yet. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus entered the heavenly holy of holies of which the Jewish temple was a type or an illustration of. And he presented his own blood as a one-time sacrifice. It's a one-time sacrifice because it was worthy to pay the price for all of mankind. He paid that price with his own precious blood and he delivered that blood unto his heavenly father. Apparently there's an altar in heaven. Apparently there's a place where the mercy seat is satisfied and that's where Jesus went. That's where he took his blood. Did you notice the part about the napkin lying off to the side? It said they saw the linen clothes lying. It's possible. I don't know that we have any way to know for sure. But the Jews learned about death when they're, during their time in Egypt. And the Egyptians have an embalming process and then a mummification process that may have been followed and held to in Jesus' day, in Jesus' death. So it's possible that they saw a hollow shell that looked like a body that was empty. But regardless whether that was the way that it went or not, the napkin was laying off to the side. Why was the napkin folded? God doesn't do things accidentally. The fact that the Bible indicates something to us that's different about that has to mean something. Well, what does it mean? Well, one possibility is that if the master of the house has to get up from the table where they're eating a meal or whatever the case is, if he's done, he just takes the napkin and wads it up on the place where he was sitting. But the servants knew that if the napkin was folded, their master was coming back. Our master is coming back. What's he coming back for? The Bible says he's coming back for a glorious church. The disciples asked Jesus on one occasion in Matthew chapter 24 about his return. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's talking about the temple, how that the temple was taken apart stone by stone in 70 AD when Titus attacked Jerusalem. They tell us that in the temple, and this was Herod's temple, but they tell us that there was gold that was mixed in with the mortar between the blocks or the stones. And so the reason and the significance for, the, for there not be one stone left upon another 
is that the Romans took it apart piece by piece to get to the gold that was in between the stones. Verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? There are three questions that they ask, and Jesus answers all three of them. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. I want you to notice a couple of things about that. First thing he mentions is deception. Don't be deceived. The only way we can avoid deception is by keeping our eyes on the truth of the word. He's telling us to continue in the word. Then he tells us some um, conditions or circumstances that will be present regarding his return. He said, nation shall rise against nation. That word nation is the word ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnic. He's talking about races fighting against others. Folks, don't think that the immigration issue in our country or the things that are going on around the world, don't think that's just the way things are. These are supernatural events coming to pass. Most of the wars that are taking place on the face of the earth today are not between countries. They're between ethnic groups. He also said that there would be famines. Between 35 and 40 percent of the world is in a drought and suffering severe famines. I know we don't hear about this stuff. Because nobody's looking at scripture in the news media and saying, hey, how does this match up with world events? Pestilence or plague is rampant in other parts of the world. Earthquakes in diverse places, there are an average of 110 earthquakes every month that are considered significant. Folks, there's so much stuff going on, we don't even have time to hear about all these things. But then notice something else Jesus said that would be a sign of the end. Verse 9, he said, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. There was a... Um, study commissioned by a Catholic organization that was released and published in November of 2017. And the study found that there is greater persecution against Christians 
than has ever been in any time in the world. Now, we read the Bible, and we know of some of the history surrounding it, and we see um, books, reliable books like uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs and things like that. And we think that the, the persecution was greater in those days. But if you look at the book of Acts there are, in history, along with it, you'll find that there were really only three waves of persecution against the early church. Acts chapter 8 talks about the, the persecution that came against the church that resulted in the, the stoning of Stephen, where Paul was consenting to his death. And then immediately following that, Paul going to get uh, letters from the Jewish council to pursue, to pursue Christians all the way into, into Syria, Damascus. And of course, that's on the road there is where Paul encountered Jesus. So that wave of persecution was not from the Romans. That wave of persecution was from the, the Jews. It continued after Paul's ministry had begun. You remember as in Acts chapter 14, it talks about how that he went to the city of Iconium, which is in the region of Galatia. And he preached there, and the Jews stirred up people against him so that he had to flee the city. He went from there to the cities of Lystra and Derbe, where those Jews that were stirred up in Iconium, when they heard about it, they came to where he was and stoned him and left him for dead. I believe they did kill him. But God raised him back up. And then after a short period of time, he goes back to the city of Iconium and said, Hi, guys. That was a part of the wave of persecution that was from the Jews, not the Romans. Now, we know in A.D. 66, 67, somewhere around there, Nero was the emperor or the Caesar of Rome. And he brought great persecution against Paul and Peter and other Christian leaders and Christians throughout the city of Rome when he set the city on fire and then blamed it on the Christians. We also know that in the last part of John's life, in A.D. 85 to 90, somewhere around there, there was a, a Roman Caesar named Domitian. And during his reign... There was great persecution against the church. Not just in Rome, but in many places throughout the Roman Empire. But the persecution that's going on now that we never hear about or hear very little about is that Christians are under persecution, meaning threat of death, in 60 countries worldwide. This study that I'm referring to found that the persecution against Christians had increased dramatically in the two years of 2015 through 2017 compared to the previous two years of 2013 to 15. They identified that every month 155 believers are killed for their faith. Every month, 60 churches are attacked. Every month, 180 Christian women are raped 
assaulted and or forced into marriage as slaves. When Jesus told the disciples that a sign of the end would be they will kill you, it doesn't seem that he was just referring to the apostles themselves. Clearly, that's a sign of the end as well. Easter weekend has, over the last number of years, been a time of great violence. You may remember last year on Palm Sunday, there was a church in Egypt, a Coptic Christian church in Egypt, that was bombed. And there were 47 people that were killed and many others injured. Then just two days later, in a small city just north of Cairo, Egypt, there was another church bombing and even more people were killed. The most violent, statistically, the most violent weekend of Chicago for the last number of years is Easter weekend. Last year there were 45 people murdered. The same is true, not, the numbers are not as great, but the same is true for cities like New York and Philadelphia. Now why would that be? Why would the resurrection of Jesus bring out such violence? couple of headlines I saw today, didn't have a chance to read anything yet. A couple of headlines I saw today online was that in Germany there are 80 people that got involved with a street fight with machetes. It's all a migrant issue, meaning Muslims against others. I also saw a headline this morning saying New York City has been passed by statistical murders in London. It's all a migrant issue. Muslims against others. Oh, and by the way, there's a Chinese space station that's hurtling into the earth. (laughs) But how how big a problem could that really be, you know? On the other side, where Jesus said false teachers and false prophets will arise, I noticed that over the weekend in the Philippines, there was a group of young people, a large group of young people, that fashioned whips with razor blades in the end of them. And they were flogging themselves to show their dedication to God. Folks, that's just as much of the devil as the murders. Thank God Jesus paid the price. Our debt is paid. So we don't have to do anything like that to shed our own blood. The thing that I've had on my heart so much about this particular Easter is the persecution that's taking place against the church. Now we live a lot to a great degree, we live in a bubble here. And it'd be real easy to ignore what's going on in the world around us. 
because our life is good. I mean, hey, we even got a tax cut. But there's a real world out there, folks, that's lost. There's a real world out there that is still plunged into darkness because of Adam and Eve's sin. We, um, many of you were here just last month, I think it was, when we took up a special offering for Bibles going into Iran. And the ministry that we worked with raised the money for, sent us a video. And the video was primarily focusing on a guy, a pastor, a minister from Iraq, who was in his 60s. They had never known a time when his country wasn't at war. And I didn't see the video until they showed it in church. And I was just amazed at the way that the guy lives. Buildings are bombed out all around where he is. His home and his church had been destroyed as well. I don't even remember any of the specifics or particulars about it. But what took me by such surprise is I didn't know people lived like that. I didn't know people had to live like that. And of course, it's all the ethnic thing or the religion thing, I guess. ISIS versus others, even of their own people. Jesus asked a question of his disciples. He said, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, shall he find faith on the earth? I think that question is still relevant. When Jesus comes back, shall he find faith on the earth? Let's pretend you're God. It'll be a short experience. But if you're God the Father who sent your son Jesus to pay the price for mankind, or if you're Jesus who experienced the horrors of spiritual death and judgment to pay the price for mankind. Would your church be operating and living such a way that you would consider the price you paid to be worthy or worthwhile? Christians that live under the persecution that we've described in the other part of the world. Oh, I I should tell you this about those 60 nations. The top of the list, the worst place of persecution is North Korea. Everybody else on the list is a Muslim country. So much for the religion of peace. But if you were Jesus or God involved in the plan of redemption... Would the church be operating in such a way that you would be glad that you paid the price? I just think the church is living so far beneath our privileges. I just think the church is living so far beneath who we've been made to be by the blood of Jesus. 
Don't you? Jesus left us here with power and authority in his name to destroy the works of the devil, not to be destroyed by them. And from God's perspective, I believe that is the story of Easter. That is the story of the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead to deliver you back unto fellowship with God the Father. To join you again through eternal life with the creator of the universe. To restore unto you the power to exercise authority on the earth as God originally intended. That, I believe, is what the resurrection is all about. Don't you think? We want to receive communion this morning. And I want you, as we're serving the people and getting everything going as we do, I want you to consider the people, your brothers and sisters around the world, that are facing death for what they believe, that are facing death for believing what you believe. I believe that we owe them a debt too. And I believe that debt is to do the works of Jesus, to break the devil's power on every hand. Amen. Amen. Gentlemen, if you will. Father's arms are open wide. Forgive. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us instruction about the Lord's Supper, about these communion rituals. It is a ritual, but it has meaning. These elements represent the body and the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, as often as we eat this, cup, eat this bread and drink this cup, we do show his death till he comes. Thank God he's coming. But these elements represent that we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. So before we partake of this communion, I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. If you're here this morning and don't know Jesus, you can never point to a time where you know that you know that you invited him into your heart. When you took advantage of the price that he paid for you individually and personally. Then we want to make that right before you receive these communion elements. So I'd like for every person in this room to repeat this after me and say it from your heart. Not just because I'm saying it. But let your heart agree with it. Dear God in heaven, I believe that Jesus is your son. That he was sent to the earth, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, 
and raised from the dead. And I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I thank you that I am your child and I am brought into the family of God. Amen. Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. This bread represents the price that Jesus paid for sickness and disease. He took stripes upon his back to bear your infirmities and carry your sicknesses. We need to recognize that physical healing is a benefit of the eternal life that comes by making Jesus our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, for this bread. Thank you that it represents the healing power of God that was made available to us. We thank you that that work of God, that power, is working in us now to raise us up, to quicken our mortal bodies. Let's receive the bread. Paul goes on to say, after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus. That it paid the price and covered the death that we owed. Thank you, Father, for eternal life in Christ Jesus. We thank you for fellowship with you, just as Jesus had. We thank you, Father, that we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Let's receive the cup. Well, let's all stand together. I trust that you heard the announcement that there will not be prayer school or healing school tonight. First time in 32 years we've canceled it. And it's all because the staff has to spend time with their families. <laughs> no, we thought it best to do it this way this time. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. We thank you, Father. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for your great plan of redemption that was accomplished and finished by Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Live in us, Father, that we might do the works of Jesus. Teach us, show us, reveal to us that which we need to see, that we might truly do the works of Jesus in our everyday lives. And Father, help us to remember those that are living under persecution, under the threat of death, just because they believe in you. Use us, Father, to pray for those people, to strengthen them, to help them. Let us not take for granted the freedom that we experience and have to be able to worship you.
but make us a help to them too. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody that agrees, said amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy Easter.